Hello and welcome to Times Tall Tales. Today I am joined by the wonderful Dr Nikki Nilsson, a lecturer in Egyptology at the University of Manchester, who's very kindly joined us today to tell us about pyramidology. Yes, thank you so much for uh, for the invitation. So yeah, I, I've, I've brought pyramids to the table, which in itself is a bit difficult. They're rather big, but I'm I'm fascinated by the pyramids. I think a lot of people are. It's one of those things. Anyone who's been to Egypt, or at least a lot of people who've been to Egypt, will have seen the pyramids. And I, I've seen them obviously many times. Every time I, I see them, it feels like I see them for the first time. I, I keep forgetting how big they actually are, the Giza pyramids. So every time I sort of go there again, and you usually, if you drive out to Giza on the highway, you can kind of see them growing out of the out of the mist, sort of in the in the horizon, and getting bigger and bigger. And they just keep getting bigger and bigger until you actually stand in front of them, and you can't even see the top. Um, so they, they are they're impressive monuments, and it's not surprising that they have attracted just a plethora of theories and speculation and. Well, in many cases, quite a lot of nonsense, um, as, as these things are wont to do. Um, so the study of pyramids, or, or rather, I should say, the study of how people have studied the pyramids is really kind of what pyramidology is all about. It's looking at how people have interacted with the pyramids, how they have explained them. Because the pyramids as, well, what, well let's start with what they are. They're, they're obviously monuments, they're burial uh, monuments, the tombs. Um, the Giza pyramids are for the, the, the larger Giza pyramids are for the uh, three fourth dynasty pharaohs Khufu, Khafre, and Menkaura. Uh, Menkaura being the little pyramid, uh, Khafre being the one in the middle, and Khufu being the, the very big one. Um, I, I should sort of note if you actually go there, Khafre's pyramid does look bigger, but that's because Khafre was quite clever um, and he didn't have the resources to build his pyramid as big as Khufu's, but he built it on higher ground. So it actually looks bigger, which is, <laughs> I, I quite, it, it's, it's kind of a flex. I like it. it it's, it's, it's a clever thing to do. Um, so uh, they were built during the Old Kingdom, during the Fourth Dynasty, um, and used to inter the, the rulers. Now, we don't have uh, the bodies of any of these kings. Um, the, 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 the pyramids, when they were entered, first time by European explorers of course they've been entered by lots of other people before um, the bodies were gone there were no treasures there's no Tutankhamun style you know wonderful things kind of stuff going on it, it's, they were empty essentially um, aside from some there was some kind of weirdness in Menkaura's in Menkaura's burial chamber there was the body of a bull for instance so there, there is some kind of weirdness but 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 mostly they're empty, they're not associated with any great treasures so I think that got people fairly early on thinking well were they really burial monuments because if you i mean if you don't understand the egyptian mindset it seems utterly absurd to expend this amount of labor and just resource on burying a king i mean it, it, this these the, the great uh, pyramid of khufu i mean we're talking 10 15 20 years of, of labor, of basically funneling almost all the income of the state into this one single project. I mean, of course, it could never happen today. So, so in that sense, it's, it, it, it's, it lends itself to, well, what if it's really not? And that idea of what if the pyramids are really not tombs is basically where pyramidology lives, right? That's where it kind of starts. And interestingly, the 
uh, first people who weren't the ancient Egyptians themselves to kind of write about the pharaonic Egyptian civilization, people like Greek historians like Herodotus, for instance, uh, Roman historians like Theodorus Sicilus and, and Pliny the Elder, for instance, a lot of them mentioned the pyramids and, and they sort of accepted that they were uh, royal tombs. They invented a lot of other nonsense. Um, I mean, Herodotus goes on at length about how Khufu was a heartless tyrant who prostituted his own daughter in order to pay for the pyramid. All this kind of stuff got added on. Um, Pliny the Elder, unsurprisingly for a quite grumpy Roman uh, orator, uh, condemned the pyramids as idle and frivolous pieces of ostentation, essentially just a waste of money uh, and, a, and a sort of, uh, you know, something that made the kings of Egypt look bad, basically, which is not terribly surprising given Pliny's views on quite a lot of things. Um, so uh, they, but they pretty much accepted the basic principle, right? That they were built by 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 the Egyptians. They were built um, as as burial monuments for the for the pharaohs. They added other stuff, like Josephus, for instance, adds the idea that the pyramids were built by slaves, which again it is nonsense. They weren't. They were built by 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 actual workers, usually uh, workers, agricultural workers who couldn't work the fields because of the Nile inundation. So they were they they worked on the pyramids instead and they were given food and paid and that sort of thing. So they added a lot of stuff, but the but the basic function of the pyramids was not called into question. That changes um, about 380 AD. It probably changed before that, but we, we don't really have any written sources to back it up. And it changes with a really fascinating historical character, um, a woman called Igeria, who was a, a, a female pilgrim uh, going from either France or Spain, somewhere in, in France or Spain, um, and she was essentially going to Jerusalem via Constantinople and then through Turkey, uh, through Syria to Jerusalem. And then she went back to, to, to Europe via Egypt, essentially crossing overland into Egypt, uh, passing Mount Sinai, um, and then taking a boat from Alexandria and going, going back to Europe. Um, and she mentions the pyramids because she passed right by them. And she describes them in her letter in this throwaway way, essentially, as the granaries of Joseph. The biblical Joseph, I, I, I think your listeners probably know, he, uh, it's a biblical story, the idea that, that, that Joseph built granaries in Egypt to, to hold the seven years, seven years worth of grain for the seven, seven bad years. So she claimed that they were Joseph's granaries. And this theory became really, really popular in the Middle Ages. The lots of, especially Byzantine scholars, um, were quite obsessed with this. And the really the kind of fantastical thing about this is some of the people who wrote this down had actually been to Egypt and seen the pyramids. And I mean, you'll know the pyramids aren't hollow. They'd be completely useless as granaries. I mean, it's basically a solid mass of stone with a few tunnels in it. There's, but where would you put the grain, right? So, but but the, the the theory took on a life of its own, became really really popular in the in the Middle Ages. If you go to uh, San Marco Cathedral in Venice, for instance, you'll see there are some uh, very beautiful mosaics depicting biblical scenes, um, and one of the uh, mosaics depict the story of Joseph. And in the background, you can see the granaries that he's ordered built and they are pyramids. Um, so the, the idea even entered into European art. Um, I, I should say it did not enter into uh, the kind of scholarly literature um, in the Arabic world. Uh, the, the Arab historians were quite aware that the pyramids had nothing to do with Joseph. And some of them even kind of pointed out slightly mockingly 
uh, this fact that the, the Christians were going around saying that these non-hollow structures were, were granaries and essentially, you know, sort of pointing and laughing a bit and saying, look at the, look at the stupid historians. Um, so it, in that sense, they, they, but it became very popular in Europe and that lasted until the essentially the beginning of the Renaissance when uh, finally, <laughs> I mean really finally, um, some uh, European historians sort of reminded everyone what Herodotus had originally said about the pyramids being being uh, burial places of the gods and also pointed out the fact that the pyramids are not hollow and so would have been worse than useless as 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 granaries so the story of Joseph kind of Joseph's granaries kind of ends and that interpretation ends in sort of the mid 16th century I don't know if you remember the American presidential election in 2015 when they were choosing the Republican candidate because one of the candidates, um, Ben Carson, who's the, you know, I think he's the housing secretary in, in the US now, um, he actually went on record saying that he believed this, that he believed the pyramids had been built by Joseph and, and as Grosser, Joseph's granaries. So even though the theory has been comprehensively killed since the since the 16th century, occasionally it will still kind of pop up in really, really unexpected places. Um, it's, perhaps, it's a little depressing, perhaps, that a, a sort of a, a gaggle of medieval scholars were smarter than the United States Housing Secretary today. I mean, perhaps we shouldn't comment too much on that. But but in, in either case, the theory kind of it, it runs out of steam at that point. And, and part of that is also because it's taken over by another theory about what the pyramids were for. And this theory really begins with a guy called John Greaves. Um, he was a... Uh, well, yeah, he was kind of a clever clogs, to be honest. He, he spoke Latin, Greek, Arabic, Persian. He studied at Oxford, Leiden, uh, Padua. He was a mathematician. He was he was he was everything. Astronomer. He was just one of these kind of polymath um, people. And he he traveled a lot uh, in in uh, in Italy and in Greece. And in in the uh, 1630s, he traveled to to Alexandria. Um, and then while in Alexandria, he took several trips to the Giza pyramids. And in general, Greece was really interested in measuring stuff. That was kind of his thing. That's why he traveled around. He wanted to find latitudes of different points and just generally measure things. I mean, it seems academics at the time could get away with kind of doing very, very vague research projects, like just going around and measuring monuments. Um, so Greaves was really really inspired by the pyramids. They made a huge impact on him, so much that he stayed in Cairo for months and months and it conducted, I guess, really, a, a, for the time, a fairly comprehensive measurement of, of the pyramids, which he then published um, in a book in 1646 called uh, Um And it's a decent book for the time, to be honest. He, he, he shies away from the more sort of insane interpretations about the pyramids. Um, but he does make one observation, which had a huge impact later on, which is he believed that the Egyptian measuring system was related to the English foot and inch. Now, his measurements of the pyramids are wrong. Right. I mean, they're straight up wrong because he, he, he didn't clear. There's lots of debris lying, lying around the base of the pyramids. And he just measured the debris as well as the pyramid. He didn't clear it away. So he didn't actually get the, the correct measurements of the pyramid itself. But he still included these mathematical calculations showing that the Egyptians used a type of, of foot related to the, to, the, uh, to the English foot. That then got 
picked up by Sir Isaac Newton, who, aside from the whole Apple story, um, spent about 50 years of his life obsessing over the Temple of Solomon, uh, described in the Bible, and over various um, biblical measurements and the existence of a, a sort of divine inch, a sort of di- a, a God-given measuring distance, basically, a me- measuring device. Um, because of, of the pyramids and, and, and uh, Egypt being mentioned in the Bible, he kind of ran with a lot of, of, uh, of Greaves' measurements and wrote this I mean, I, I've read it. It's available online if anyone wants to 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 completely waste an afternoon. Uh, a dissertation upon the sacred cubit of the Jews and the cubits of several nations from 1737. It it gives you a headache to read. It's basically this mad mixture of incredibly opaque mathematical calculations, bits of biblical theory. Um, bits of mythology, all of it just sort of thrown together to show that the builders of the Temple of Solomon and the builders of the pyramid used a sacred cubit, a sacred measuring uh, device to 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 uh, to chart out these great structures. And uh, this kind of idea of the pyramid inch, as it became known, the the special God-given measurement used to build the pyramids, that. The, the kind of popular interest in that came at a time in Britain when, when Britain was uh, right about to start what's called the Battle of the Standards. And the Battle of the Standards, is, it's something hilariously British. I, I'm Danish, so I, 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 I moved here about 12 years ago, and I have never heard of anything more British than the Battle of the Standards. Um, basically, it, it, it started when the French invented the metric system. Um, and and sort of popularized it from the late 18th century onwards. And in by the mid-19th century, they had made it the only acceptable legal system in French territory. Um, the United States Congress uh, approved it as a measuring system, and the British were incredibly resistant to it, incredibly resistant to it, partly because it came from France, which, you know, that that's, I mean, that was clearly for quite a lot of intellectuals, the entire kind of point of argument was that it had been invented by the French. So um, there was a lot of, of, of uh, argument against incorporating the metric system, even against acknowledging it um, as an actual legal system that could be used in Britain, as opposed to the imperial measurements. Um, perhaps the most, the most, I guess, fanatical opponent of the metric system was a guy called John Taylor. He was a publisher and an editor and an author um, living in London. And he wrote a, a book called The Great Pyramid, Why Was It Built and Who Built It, which was published in 1859. Um, and in this book, he uses Greaves' calculations, Newton's calculations, and, and just a seemingly random thoughts that occurred to him in the middle of the night um, to argue for the existence of this pyramid inch and also to argue that the pyramid inch was essentially directly related to the British imperial inch and that therefore the British imperial measuring system was literally given by God. It was a divinely ordained system and therefore it could never be replaced by something that had been dreamt up by a bunch of French revolutionaries, basically. Um, 
Unfortunately for Taylor, he lost the argument. In, in 1864, the British Parliament legalized the use of the metric system within the United Kingdom, um, so it could legally uh, be, be used. Um, but Taylor's uh, kind of argumentation didn't die with him. Quite highly placed people, including the Astronomer Royal of Scotland, a guy called Charles Piazzi Smythe, um, took up this cause and, and basically arguing that the pyramids proved that the British measuring system was divinely ordained. Um, and by this point, um, the whole argument had gone decidedly religious. Um, on one side, you had a lot of people who uh, were into what's called British Israelism, um, which essentially was a very popular idea around this time that British people, that the Anglo-Saxon race, whatever that is, had descended directly from one of the lost tribes of Israel. Um, and, and they saw the debate not as a debate between measuring systems. For, for them, it was essentially a debate between a religious society and a non-religious society. So it, it, very famously in one of these many, many pamphlets that they put out, um, they said the followers of Darwin and the infidel will both deny the inspiration of our weights and measures and ascribe all of our progress to natural progression and doubtless will hail the appearance of the new French unit as another argument in favor of their peculiar views and theories and will equally uh, be ready to readopt the fantastic freaks of the French Revolution, even to abandoning the Sabbath and burning the Bible. So basically, if you like the metric system, uh, you were on the same side as people who guillotined people. That was kind of the that that was the kind of uh, argument as as it was put forth. So it became very very religious, and in a sense, the argument sort of ate itself because it became so fanatical and so nuts that you get the feeling quite a lot of people just lost patience with it. As I, I think it sort of it, it can happen when a, when a theory gets sort of so outlandish. Um, you know, it, it loses some of its uh, some of its kind of popular appeal. But the idea, I mean, all of this starts with the pyramids, of course, and starts with this idea that the pyramids are not built by the ancient Egyptians, that they're not built by, uh, you know, to be to be uh, tombs of kings. But the idea was that they were built using some sort of divinely ordained measurement um, and to contain within the measurements of the pyramids all the kind of wisdom of, of the divine. And you might think, I mean, the obvious question is, well, why would a bunch of pagan Egyptians be given a, a divine measuring system by a Christian god? That seems a bit mental, right? Um, and they, they very conveniently got around this by claiming that the Egyptians didn't actually build the pyramids at all. Um, Taylor, for instance, was of the opinion that Noah, as in the guy with the ark, had been the, the, the build master of the, of the pyramids. So they took this kind of biblical narrative and fed it into the to the uh, into the pyramids um then i i guess from that point onwards the idea of of the pyramids as having some sort of um religious function christian religious function became more and more popular in particular in the u.s um by a, a guy called joseph size um for instance who was a, a lutheran minister he was a very big fan of, of the idea that the pyramids contained within them. If you knew the measurements of the pyramids and if you took these measurements and ran them through these arcane mathematical calculations, you could essentially use them to read the will of God, basically. Um, which sounds, again, completely nuts. If you, if you think about it, it's totally mad. But it was very popular. And, and Size's theories were then picked up by uh, a guy called Charles Taze Russell. And you, you may know him because he's the founder of what is today Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and he was uh, was very, very into this idea. He actually described the Giza Pyramid as 
God's stone witness or as Jehovah's witness, which is where the name comes from. Um, he also predicted the end of the world quite a few times. Um, and it, in one case, he actually sold, he owned some clothing stores and he sold all of his clothing stores and then went with his followers and sat on, on a mountain and then nothing happened. And he, he had to go back and back and recalculate, which, uh, yeah, there's a bit unfortunate, isn't it? I, I, I don't know why he, you know. I remember that there was um he, he used the explanation that he he predicted the start of the end of the world not the actual indeed, end of the world yeah indeed yes yeah I, th- I think it reminds it doesn't this happen in a Simpsons episode as well I'm pretty sure there's a Simpsons episode based around this idea um, so it, you know it, it, it it's yeah it's kind of art, life imitating art um, but. It, it, in a sense, the idea of the pyramids as being sort of, um, you know, the physical manifestations of the will of God. Um, again, it they that idea never really became that popular. Occasionally, it resurfaced throughout the 20th century. This um, British military officer, John Garnier, wrote uh, an unbelievably insane book called Great Pyramid, Its Builder and Its Prophecy, where he claimed that, the you know, if you understood the measurements of the pyramid, you could predict the future of the Anglo-Saxons. Which, uh, yeah, that, so there, lots of stuff like this comes out. Um, later on, the pyramids get linked to Atlantis um, and to to the idea of, well, essentially hyperdiffusionism. So the idea that because there are pyramids in, in Mesoamerica and there are pyramids in Egypt, they must have had had a kind of common origin, right? They meant that the people who built them must have come from the same place, like Atlantis, and then have gone to different areas of the world and built them. And of course, uh, hyperdiffusionism is, is is I mean is debunked as a as a theory today, but it was very popular at the time, and it's still popular with you know in in some quarters. I mean, if you read something like Graham Hancock or, or watch you know read Eric von Daniken or watch any episode of of uh, of, uh, of uh, Ancient Aliens, for instance, you'll see that that idea of hyperdiffusionism, that idea of because some because two things are similar, they must have a common origin. I think Ancient Aliens takes this to almost ludicrous levels. If you like, one of my my favorite episode descriptions that I ever ever read um, was um, it was a blurb in a TV TV program. It said um, this week on Ancient Aliens, uh, ancient alien theorists discuss uh, the common depiction of eggs. Uh, throughout the world and basically suggest that there is a common ancient alien kind of link as to why all of these cultures are depicting eggs and why these eggs are often used as symbols of fertility. I mean, why why wouldn't they? Eggs are quite common. I mean, it's not, it's a little bit like saying, why do so many cultures depict trees? It's because they're kind of everywhere or at least in lots of different places. It doesn't, and, and again, the fact that two or three or even five or 10 different cultures link the egg with fertility well, that's probably just because agricultural people can spot a metaphor. I mean, it, it, it's a pretty obvious thing to link with fertility, isn't it? I mean, it literally brings forth life, it, you know. So, but but the idea of hyperdiffusionism is that these things could not possibly have developed independently. They have to have a common ancestry, a common origin. And that's where Atlantis comes in. And, and this idea that all of these um, kind of great buildings in the world are either built by uh, sort of priests fleeing from Atlantis or more popularly today that they're all built by ancient aliens they're built by aliens who visited ancient societies um the ancient alien theory in terms of when that sort of comes into it that comes into it pretty late um 
in general, I mean, I, I don't know if you're familiar with H.G. Wells, The War of the Worlds, um, a very famous piece of, of science fiction, excellent piece of science fiction. And, and when that was first published, um, War of the Worlds was basically ripped off um, pretty quickly. It was plagiarized by an American magazine. That happened a lot in the Victorian era that, you know, when you publish something in London, very quickly thereafter, the exact same story would appear in Boston or New York, but with a different author's name and a few words changed here and there. It was pretty difficult to track down at the time. So, you know, it was basically ripped off by by uh, by another author, a guy called Garrett P. Service, who, who preserved the story as it was and then wrote some sequels to it, like uh, a book called Edison's Conquest of Mars, um, which uh, they're very funny. They're basically kind of space operas, um, but they are how a Victorian would envisage space travel um so in a, they, they they remind me a little bit of Jules Verne if you've read sort of like journey you know journey to the moon or what, what it's called in English but the, this sort of slightly bizarre idea of what space and space travel is but importantly in Edison's conquest uh, of Mars um the main characters discover that it was in fact aliens Martians to be precise who built the pyramids in the Nile Valley and also carved the sphinx and I mean, this was a fiction book, right? This was not meant to be taken as as, as factual. But that idea of, of aliens having something to do with the construction of the pyramids, um, that entered into the kind of popular imagination. And then different authors started writing books about it that were not meant to be fictional, that were meant to be sort of factual interpretations. Um, two of the authors, Peter uh, Colosimo, Italian, and, and, and uh, a British guy called Wilkins, um, wrote a lot of books on this. Wilkins in particular was also very, um, he wrote from a deeply unpleasant and deeply, deeply racist um, kind of starting point. Essentially, his idea was that anyone who wasn't white and European couldn't possibly build anything of any note. So, so therefore, all of these structures in Latin America and in Egypt and stuff like that had to be built by some other force because it, it couldn't conceivably have been built by, by local people. And that idea is something that you still see. I mean, occasionally ancient aliens or their spokespeople will deny that they have any kind of racist overtone. I mean, that's nonsense. The whole theory is, is deeply racist from, from its very core. Because if you look at it, the, the structures that they say are built by aliens are, you know, the pyramids, um, the NASCAR lines, the Easter Island statues. It's never stuff in Europe. I mean, no one has ever suggested that the Acropolis or, or that the St. Peter's Cathedral was built by aliens, even though they are arguably also very, very impressive structures. So I, it, they, they tend to sort of focus very much on, on non-European structures. And, and the idea is sort of implied that the local cultures couldn't possibly have constructed something that complex and that, that big. Um, today it's aliens of course and you know the, the aliens are used as the explanation but a lot of these theories about the pyramids and about other um other kind of alien involvement especially in latin america actually can be traced back to uh, the ananaba to the the um well let's call them the scientific division of the waffen ss during the second world war who had a lot of very outlandish theories about who built what because they were very keen to prove that obviously white aryans built all of these things and and some of these theories that are being published even today by people like uh, eric von Daniken are basically ripped off directly from the Arnenerbe scholars and from from what they produced or sometimes word for word um so 
the basis of a lot of this ancient alien stuff when it comes to the pyramids when it comes to to uh, to to non-european constructions it has some really really unfortunate baggage if i mean really heavy 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 baggage um and yet it continues in popularity unfortunately i see so i mean it's it's a very sordid history then you know there's it, it is it's it's a very you, you can't quite take it at fa- i mean this is a big problem i mean not just with egypt i mean egypt i argue is quite possibly one of the worst affected but even just looking at sort of past archaeology in a broad term you know including things like antiquarians and things like that mm-hmm. everybody is biased there is there is always there is always someone's opinion at play and i mean that's i mean this is very philosophical i'm afraid but that's sort of the big problem with trying to do history is that we don't we we will never understand the truth but the problem is is because we can't have the truth this opens up for all these strange outlandish ideas you know what all you've just told us about there's I mean, yes, there is a way to say, you know, some of the really ludicrous ones are wrong. Yeah. But there's also yeah. no alternative explanation. You can't go, well, you're wrong. This is the right answer. And I, I think part of the problem, in a sense, is that with something like the pyramids, um, the construction of the pyramid, I mean, the, the theories that are proposed by, for instance, Darnikin can actually be demonstrated. I mean, they can be demonstrated as being wrong um, because one of his main arguments, for instance, is that we don't know anything about the people who built their, their, the pyramids. That's manifestly untrue. We have an entire pyramid workers village that's been excavated for the last 25 years at, at Haid el-Gurab near Giza. So that is manifestly just straight up untrue. But but the problem is, it's it, when when you deal with people like that, and, and occasionally I come across them, and, and, and the thing is, what they call into question is not just your evidence. It is you yourself and your standpoint, in a sense. So, so one one story that I, I think really kind of encapsulates this so well is um, a few years ago. I, I was oh, actually quite a few years ago now. Um, I was invigilating an exam at Liverpool, and and my fellow invigilator, um, we we were chatting while we were waiting for the next kind of group of students to come in, and and he mentioned that he believed that the pyramids, that the ancient Egyptians had uh, electricity and light bulbs. And I, I, I explained to him why this is not correct. Uh, you know, we've been excavating in Egypt for 300 years. I'm pretty sure we would have found a battery by now or a light bulb or, or any evidence whatsoever that this this that they had this. Um, and, and he just kept denying, just outright denying. And at the end, he got so frustrated. He said, well, you're an Egyptologist anyway. You were never going to admit it. And that is a fantastic way to completely shut down any kind of debate because it it calls into question not just my 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 um evidence but my motivations it sort of suggests that there is some kind of um shadowy conspiracy you know to to try to keep this evidence hidden which i mean anyone who's ever actually hung out with academics knows that that simply can't be true i mean first of all we're terrible at keeping secrets and also i mean academics can't agree how to reference essays 
I mean, really, you know, the the idea that we could agree on some sort of mass world-spanning conspiracy <laughs> is completely absurd. Um, you know, especially because if I had that kind of information, I wouldn't be an academic. I'd be living on the Bahamas somewhere after having sold that knowledge to someone. You know, I mean, the idea that 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 something like that could be kept secret is just ludicrous. Um, but it's a really good way to kind of shut down any kind of debate because you call people's motivations, their honesty, into question, and then anything they say from that point onwards is basically invalid. So I think that's part of the problem that that we find it very difficult to pe- to to debate with people who has that kind of attitude because how how do you get to it? Right? We're, we're used to debating sort of viewpoints and you present evidence, the other person presents evidence back and forth and back and forth. And then you either agree to disagree or you agree on some kind of uh, commonality, some sort of uh, compromise. But but the idea that not only that, that none of the evidence you provide matters, but also that you just get shot in the knee, basically, the moment you start the debate, I think that's very difficult to deal with. Mm. So, I mean, obviously that's you'd hope that's kind of a a one in a hundred chance but I I find a big problem with Egypt and I'm I'm quite new to the world of archaeology I mean before this I was sort of stuck doing World War II stuff at school I didn't really get the chance to look further Mm. back in history but I found that a lot of people's motivations to not necessarily study but actually look into the past especially Egypt it comes from you know people go oh you you like archaeology oh like Indiana Jones then you know it comes from the movies and obviously there's millions of movies about ancient Egypt and all sorts of different things well, that that that's true. That is true. I mean, I will say I I I did quite like uh, Indiana Jones growing up. I'm still quite partial to Indiana Jones, I have to say. Although, but this is the funny thing. I absolutely used to like. I doubt you can remember it, but there used to be in the '90s a TV show called Stargate SG One. I don't know whether you've ever come across it. Horrible, kitschy Canadian sci-fi series, and it is basically pseudo archaeology. It is essentially the kind of pseudo archaeological theories set in in fiction. I used to love it, but but the fact that I I absolutely loved it in the 90s didn't turn me into, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, Eric Von Daniken. So I, I think partly, partly, you know, you can be influenced by these things, but it doesn't necessarily change your your kind of viewpoint of things. Not, not I think not, it, it doesn't follow automatically. I think part of the issue, because the, the belief in these things are growing exponentially basically more and more people are believing these things about ancient aliens and stuff part of it is tied to a sort of broader um tendency in society to be quite society has become very very critical and very um i guess um less likely to believe people just because they're called experts um so there there has been that slight sort of pushback against the establishment if that's even a thing um so i think that that partly is responsible for it and also we've massively dropped the ball i mean as egyptologists and archaeologists and scholars and in general we've done an absolutely terrible job at communicating with people because we've either kind of scoffed at at the idea of doing public outreach and doing stuff like that um or we've 
you know, essentially insisted on on publishing only sort of research output, which frankly to most people is not particularly interesting. So I think in a sense, we've kind of created the situation because we've left this big vacuum of information. And, and if we don't provide the information, then people will get the information from elsewhere and they'll get the information that sounds more interesting. And that's the frustrating thing because the real story of how the pyramids were built is way more interesting if it's told well than any amount of kind of ancient alien nonsense. It, it is a fascinating story, um, but it needs to be told well. It can't be told through 300 articles on, on ceramic typology from the Giza Plateau because no one reads them. You know, that's fine. You need to have the research. You need to have the kind of peer-reviewed stuff that needs to be out there. But it'd be really great if that could also be paired with something that is a little bit more approachable. It doesn't have to dumb things down. I don't think that's a good idea because you don't want to talk down to people. That's just, you know, that's just rude. Um, but the same information can be presented in, in a more engaging narrative um, fairly easily. Hmm. Bit like your book. <laughs> Well, yes, a little uh, bit like it. Uh, yes, I was saying, um, yeah, no, I. What I really like asking people, and you've essentially just answered, is how you know how you would make. What would you change to make what you love more accessible? And it really is the idea of just taking the time to to say it right, but to say yeah. it well. And a big problem I find is people. You know, they read like one thing online and suddenly, you know, they might as well have a PhD. It, oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it carried away. And I personally find them really interesting, the slightly more uh, off the hand kind of theories, the ones that you just sort of think, how, how on earth did that? Oh, yeah. That I mean, it can be fascinating. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think... Part of the issue, I would love to see more cooperation with with um, certain private companies. Things like Ubisoft. I don't know whether you, you you play Assassin's Creed, but but the the one recently published or fairly recently said in ancient Egypt had a kind of study tour where you could uh, walk around bits of ancient Egypt. The study tour was curated and put together with kind of good scientific information curated by Egyptologists. That was the result of a cooperation between Ubisoft in Canada and, and some Canadian Egyptologists. And that's amazing because that can reach more people than any amount of books, even books written for the public. Something like that, was it was downloaded millions of times. There is no way we can reach that from a university in, in any other way. Of course, that requires money. And in this case, it requires Ubisoft to pay quite a lot of money to, to create this thing. It's very unlikely that universities would, would be quite happy to spend those sums of money for stuff that they perhaps don't consider to be part of their mission. And I think that that's another part of the problem. You know, if you and that that's not only Manchester, but a lot of universities all over the world, if you write a book uh, which is aimed for the general public, kind of aimed at, at sort of broader education in a sense it will count for less on a promotion application than an academic monograph that's read by by three people um that i think is slightly problematic because that in a sense forces people to prioritize publishing one over another right so if, if i've excavated a site for 10 years and i'm getting ready to write this sort of magnum opus on this site um I'm, I, my instinct would be both to write a scientific publication, a scientific monograph, but also to write something that was more accessible. But if I then get told, oh, well, this accessible one, yeah, it's not going to count to your promotions. We don't really care if you read it, do it in your own time. Then I would be less likely to do that. 
So I think that's that's sort of part of the part of the issue that that the idea of outreach and 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 sort of educating more broadly and reaching out to people that still isn't as much as many universities have it in their sort of fancy slogans and and buzzwords it hasn't ref- it hasn't manifested itself on the ground yet. Mm, yeah, people still sort of you look not necessarily for the right answer then but the one that you find most interesting. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and y- what you've kind of got to show people is actually the truth is interesting, you know, the the actual yeah. often, reality. Often more so, yeah. And it's very vivid and there's some really, really lovely, I mean, committed writing out there. I like I said I'm quite I'm quite new to this, so I sort of I've dived into the deep end and just went all <laughs> in essentially reading everything I can. Um but there is there is so much out there that people you know, if they didn't just Google on Wikipedia, all the sort well, of strange I mean, half-baked theories. I mean, I know I mean, there is there is lots of stuff. I mean, that, I mean, Wikipedia is definitely better, but I mean, there, there is lots of stuff. I mean, I, I think a really good example is um, one of the kind of main theories about why aliens built the pyramids is that the the Great Pyramid of Khufu, the first pyramid to be built at Giza, was was unique. That's why it had to be built by aliens because it, it had no precedent. And that is just untrue. Um, the, the first pyramid that was built was built by a pharaoh called Djoser in the third dynasty, um, and a step pyramid. And then his successor built three pyramids um, at Maidum and Dashua. And the story of this successor, he was called Snefru, and his three pyramids, which basically, well, that was how the Egyptians worked out how to build pyramids, was to build three of them, and the first two failed hilariously. Um, and, and that is actually a much better story of you know the first time we can see by by looking you know analyzing the building and and and, and the, the architecture that it started out as a step pyramid then the king changed his mind and wanted uh, sort of covering stones so the sides were smooth but then the thing hadn't been built to support the weight and then this the sides started slipping down and then they realized they'd built it half on sand instead of bedrock and then the thing started collapsing um you know then they tried again but they got the angle wrong so about halfway up the pyramid they realized realized that if they kept going with that angle the pyramid would be about 200 meters tall um so they had to change the angle so it has this weird weird shape that's a way better story of basically the egyptian architects just just succeeding through failure basically over and over again making mistakes until they finally get it right and then build a pyramid at dashur for snefru which works and, and which doesn't collapse and which has the right angle. And then Khufu, his successor, uses that and scales it up. Uh, and, and his architecture used that as their kind of blueprint and, and learn from their mistakes. That, I think, is a way more fascinating story of, of kind of human endeavor than, than the idea that, oh, well, some aliens parked their spaceship and pointed at the ground and whoops, there was a pyramid, you know. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's a way better, it's a way better story, but it needs to be explained in a way that's engaging. Mm. No, indeed, and I think that's that's a really that's a really really nice story. Um, I I spoke to Joyce before about Snefru, and obviously there's some quite interesting um, magical tales oh, yeah, yeah, associated yeah. with him. Uh, so there's <laughs> there's a lot really there, and it's they are. I mean, they're past humour almost, but you can you can see where they're coming from. You can see how enjoyable that actually maybe well maybe not for the builders but for the it's it becomes a bit more funny doesn't it always the fans you can imagine 
you know, ancient, ancient humor can occasionally be very, very funny if you can actually kind of understand it, because a lot of it is very, very weird, because it requires <laughs> a lot of kind of, well, it requires all these kinds of reference points that we don't have, you know, but occasionally that one of my, my favorite ancient Egyptian objects is a, is a, a, a little, you know, you have these uh, ostraca like small stones that people wrote signs on. Um, and it's, it's a little stone, little flake of limestone, which was found in, in, in Thebes at the foot of a mountain among millions of other pieces of stone. And someone in Pharaonic Egyptian times has picked it up and written, this is a little stone on the stone and then put it back. And there's something hilarious in that. <laughs> For some reason, I just find that incredibly hilarious that someone has bothered to pick up this stone among millions of other pieces and just gone, yeah, this is a little stone, and then put it back down. It's so <laughs> pointless and so absurd um, that it, it is actually quite funny. Oh, that's fantastic. And it's the little things like that that, you, you you know, they make you smile and they make it sort of, you see that, you know, these are people and these yes. are, yeah. you know, yeah. they've, they're, they're after me. They've got jokes and it's really, really fun. Absolutely, I really love yeah. it. Well, unfortunately, we are pretty much out of time. So <laughs> is there, do you have anything else you would like to add finally? Any passing words or any promotions you'd like to do? Or no, I, I think that was, I think that was, uh, that was pretty much everything. Again, thank you so much for, for, for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been lovely chatting to you and I, I hope we can do it again sometime. Hopefully. All right. <laughs> Marvelous. Thank you very much for joining us and we shall right. we shall see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.